Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and welcome to you. Thank you for joining me today. I want to continue in our One in Messiah series today, celebrating our Jewish heritage. And we are in Lesson 9, which is the next to the last lesson in this official series that we are going to be doing. We're doing it as a live class, and this is the taped version of this week's live class. And today we're going to talk about reaching the Jews for Jesus, Jewish evangelism, what Jesus meant and talked about when he said to the Jew first, they need the gospel. They need to understand. Just like in the tabernacle, there was one door. There was one entrance into the courtyard where the altar of burnt offering was and where the labor was and then where the priest that had been sanctified and prepared could enter into the holy place and there was the tabernacle proper where that most holy place was and only the high priest could go in there one day a year. Well, just like there's one door to enter that place, there is one way to God in heaven. There is one way to heaven, and that is through the door, Jesus Christ, the provision that God has made. And so the Jewish people need to understand this, that he is their Messiah. So how should Christians try to help evangelize the Jews, try to help the Jewish people see this? Because we've talked about how, because of their rejection of their Messiah, as a whole in the nation and the leadership, they were placed under a curse of blindness. We saw that Paul writes about that in Romans chapter nine through 11, but that blindness is not permanent. We talked about that. And the veil, the word says is removed, that blindness is removed when they will turn to Jesus. So today we wanna to talk about how to reach them for Jesus Christ. And I told the class, there's a, if you want to kind of look at it perhaps as an outline, all of these start with the letter A. But the first one is to apologize. And what I mean by that is that we need to understand why they're resistant. We covered that in an earlier lesson. And much of that has to do with their mentality about Christianity because they've grown up, many of them either survived the Holocaust or they grew up from parents or grandparents who had been involved in the Holocaust. And they know about how many people in their family have died perhaps at the hands of these Nazis and so forth in Germany and in these places where they were in these camps. And so we need to understand that much of the Jewish people have suffered many things at the hands of people who called themselves Christians. But beloved friend, that was not the Jesus of the Bible. That was not the Jesus that we serve. That may have been done in his name, but it was not truly from him. And so they have suffered many things and we need to understand that. And in that sense, we can have a humble spirit be willing to apologize on behalf of the true Jesus Christ for all that was done to them that had nothing to do with the true Jesus Christ. Secondly, 
appreciate, appreciate them and their contribution to the world in many ways. But I'm speaking specifically about the fact that they have preserved for us the word of God. We would not have the history of creation. We would not have the history of all the kings and the prophecies and all of those things without the Jewish people, those scribes and rabbis and so forth that were meticulous to copy it year after year and to make sure that it was correct and every jot and every tittle was perfect. So we need to appreciate them for the word of God that they've given us. We also need to appreciate them because it was through Abraham's line, it was through the Jewish people that the Messiah for the entire world has now come. His name is Yeshua. Yeshua, Jesus, salvation. And he is the Savior for the whole world, God's own Son. And God saw fit to bring him through the Jewish line, through Abraham's son, just like he had promised the seed to Abraham. And he was talking about Messiah, the same one promised to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, 15. Who would crush the serpent's head? Who would deliver us and save us? We need to appreciate what God has done for the church through the Jewish people and their contribution over all of those many thousands of years. Then third, attract. Attract them in the sense, not I don't mean in a physical way, I mean attract them to the Jesus in us that is alive and that is real. Paul talked about it and he called it this, provoke them to jealousy. We've talked about this many times in these lessons, that what that is talking about is to whet their appetite. In other words, to attract them, to cause them to see the real Jesus Christ, the God who loves us, the God who sent his own son to die for us. Let them see Jesus in us. Let them see the love of Jesus in us. And through that, may God then attract them and whet their appetite and may they then want to know this Jesus and become interested in him to the point that it will draw them to Jesus. Then apply, connect the dots, connect the puzzle pieces together of the Old Testament and the New Testament. As we talked about in a prior lesson, the puzzle box is the, the box that has all the broken little pieces in it to make the picture that's on the box. And we saw how the Old Testament is like that box. All of the pieces, when they are put together, will reveal Jesus, who is revealed in the New Testament. So we need to be able to connect the dots because to reach the Jewish people, as we've seen and we'll see today, we need to be able to show them Jesus in the Old Testament, in the Tanakh, in their very Bible. So we need to know how to apply the Old Testament to the New Testament in a way that can show them that. Then atonement. In other words, introduce them to Jesus. Bring them the gospel, the good news of the atonement. 
not a high priest who has to have a temple and can only go in one day a year, but Jesus, the great high priest, according to Hebrews, has gone into the most holy place in the heavenly temple and has offered his own blood on the mercy seat before the living God in heaven, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So we need to bring them the good news. There's atonement and that atonement is once for all. Jesus doesn't ever have to die again and he will never die again. This atonement is once for all and it applies to everyone who will believe in Jesus Christ and receive him. The good news of the gospel, they need it. They need to understand the atonement that Jesus provides for them to write their name in the Lamb's book of life forever, not just for another year. Praise be to God. And lastly, anticipation. In other words, the king coming to his beloved city, Jerusalem, and sitting and ruling and reigning on David's throne in Jerusalem, just like Isaiah and Zechariah and Daniel and many of the others have prophesied. The king is coming. He is Messiah. He is Jesus Christ. He came the first time as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. And he died and paid the penalty for all of our sins. But beloved friend, he's coming again. He's coming again. And he will fulfill every prophetic word that is yet remaining, such as the words from Isaiah and Zechariah and others that talk about the king who will come and sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem and rule and reign forevermore. And he will be given the everlasting kingdom that Daniel prophesied about. And we need to cover all of this with prayer and love for them. God loves his people. And he told us even in the prodigal son about how he's desiring that son to come home. It's the same thing with the Jewish people as it is with any Gentiles. God wants his house to be full. He wants them all to come in. And so we need to be praying diligently for the Jewish people and loving them enough to share the good news with them. Part of that will result in a relationship building and a trust building. We don't just go to them and blow them over with all kinds of things, just like with anyone else. There's a reason that we build relationships and build trust. And you have to accept one another where we are and then work to help one another. So that may come into play as well. So we need to begin patiently to work with them and show them the connection to the New Testament. Let's talk about some practical ways, some practical things from Scripture, and let's look at this. Show them the connection to the New Testament. For instance, Matthew 1, many people, many Jewish people will testify to you, and I know several personally that have told me the very same thing, that Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 is one of the places that absolutely arrested them to understand that what they've been taught in their Jewish schools Jesus is not the Messiah. He's some other God. All of that was not true because in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it tells them Jesus was a Jew. Jesus 
was the son of Abraham, the son of David. Hallelujah. And so they come to learn that this Jesus that they always had been taught against is actually a Jew. So we need to show them these connections. We can give them personal experiences from our own lives. We can refer them to other ministries and other people, such as Mitch Glazer, who is the founder and director of, of Chosen People Ministries. You can point them to people such as Marty Getz, such as Chosen People Ministries on their website. They have Jewish testimonials. They have about a hundred different videos of Jewish people who came to faith in Messiah. And they told their story of how that happened and how they now believe and know that he is the Jewish Messiah. He's not some other God, but they need to be able to understand that. How is he their Messiah? their anointed one, the, the anointed one that was promised by God to come to them, the Messiah King, their promised Savior, their promised salvation, which is what Yeshua means. He is the promised son of Abraham. He is the promised son of David, and he will rule on his throne. So we need to be able to show them and connect their scriptures to the fulfillment and how Jesus is the one and only who is the Messiah, the fulfillment of every one of those scriptures. So I want to spend some time now pointing out several. There are many others. I'm only choosing a few, but this is just to whet our appetites a little bit, to give us some understanding of some of the ways that we can help the Jewish people understand from their scriptures that Yeshua Jesus is their Messiah. And we can share with them the good news so that they can know him also and so that they can become a part of his family through faith in Jesus Christ. First of all, their scriptures prophesied that this coming Messiah would be a virgin-born Savior. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is the first place this is found and is the first messianic prophecy in the scriptures. And it says that it would be the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head, meaning he would be virgin born. There is no seed of the woman in the natural realm biologically, but there is coming, Moses wrote about, a promised one who would be virgin born. And that was Yeshua, the Messiah. If that's not enough, Isaiah 7, verse 14 and 15, prophesied the same thing. Isaiah said, the virgin shall conceive, not biologically possible. He would be virgin born. Jesus' childhood and his humanity were prophesied also from the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, or from the Tanakh. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 15, where it talked about how he would grow up and he would be eating curds and honey. Isaiah 53 spoke about how he will grow up as a root out of dry ground. He'll grow up. Jesus' life and ministry was prophesied. Psalm 78, verse 2, for instance, says that he would speak in parables. What did 
Jesus come along in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and do. He spoke many things in parables to them. Isaiah 61 speaks of how the Spirit of the Lord would be upon him and anoint him to preach the good news to the poor and to heal the brokenhearted and all of those things that it said. And who fulfilled that? Jesus fulfills that in his ministry. You can read it in the Gospels. And in Luke chapter 4, he stands up when he's given an opportunity in the synagogue to stand up. And he finds that reading from Isaiah 61. He reads it. He reads through half of verse 2. He closes the book and says to them, This day this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So he is the Messiah that Isaiah prophesied about, that David prophesied about in the Psalms, that Moses prophesied about in Genesis and all through the Torah. He is the Messiah. Jesus' death was prophesied. Two major places in the Old Testament, in the Tanakh, Isaiah chapter 53 is all about Jesus, Messiah, and his death. I did a series, if you're interested, you can look it up, on Isaiah 53, and it's called Isaiah's Messiah, exploring Isaiah 53 or something along those lines, Isaiah's Messiah, and we dealt with that. We also did one, a second version of Isaiah's Messiah, looking at the names of the Messiah prophesied in the book of Isaiah, but Isaiah 53 is all about Jesus' death. Psalm 22, written by David a thousand years before Jesus came on the scene and was crucified on the cross. And yet in Psalm 22, read that psalm, you will find explicit and exact details on exactly what did in fact happen to Jesus at the cross and remember that David prophesied that 1,000 years before it ever happened. Those are two major places in the Tanakh that speak explicitly about Jesus dying for our sins. Another one is pictured for us. It's typified for us. And most Jews know this. This is an excellent place to help the Jews understand if they know anything about the Bible and are in any way religious, most Jews will know about the binding of Isaac. That's what they call it, Akedah, the binding of Isaac. And when you go through Genesis 22, it is such a beautiful picture of exactly what would happen to Jesus on the cross and how he would die as the Ram caught in the thicket, the substitute. Think about this in, in Genesis chapter 22. The father is asked in that. It's a test of Abraham's faith, but it's a beautiful example. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 that God was preaching the gospel to Abraham through Genesis 22. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel because a father who loves his son, is asked to give up his son. Now, it was a test for Abraham and for Isaac, but it was only a picture of what God the Father would do in giving up his son. 
In Abraham and Isaac, the son was very likely an adult, most likely around 30 years old. The son willingly was laying himself down on the altar. Isaac could have overpowered Abraham, but he didn't. He was the willing son. Jesus was the willing son, laying down his life so that we could live instead. The son was carrying the wood and the fire for the sacrifice up the hill when they came to Mount Moriah. Jesus carried the wood and the fire in the sense that he had already been experiencing great torture, so much so that his body was so weak he kept falling down, and they finally had Simon to help him carry the wood up the hill. He was carrying the wood and the fire, just like Isaac was doing, up Golgotha's hill. God himself provided the substitute ram, a male sheep. Jesus was our substitute ram on Calvary. Jesus, the son of God himself, and Isaac allowed himself and the father bound him to the altar in Abraham's example. Now God spared Isaac in that example, but through that whole scenario, Abraham was shown exactly what God the Father and God the Son would do on Mount Moriah, that very same mountain, in Jesus' day in the New Testament. And Jesus became that substitute. He died that you and I might live and he was the willing son. Notice this, in Psalm chapter 118, which the Jews who celebrate Passover every single year in their Seder, they will sing or recite the Hallel Psalms as part of their Seder service. And this is one of the Hallel Psalms. As a matter of fact, it's the last Hallel Psalm that they will sing in that Seder service. And Jesus, having the Passover, the Last Supper with his disciples, would have also sung or recited these same Psalms, Psalm 113 through 118, as part of the Passover Seder that's been celebrated for 3,500 years. Psalm 118, verse 22 through 24 says this, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. I want to read a few more verses, verse 25 through 27. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Now, if you'll remember when the when Jesus was coming down the ascent, the descent of the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, riding on the donkey and the Pharisees and others began to hear them crying out this word, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They got very upset because they knew that this was a messianic cry. So the people were crying out to Jesus and receiving him as Messiah when he was riding in on that donkey as the fulfillment 
of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Another prophecy from the Tanakh being fulfilled by Jesus on that day. Now, let me read verse 27. God is the Lord and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Jesus was the willing son because he knew that on that day of his crucifixion, the day that he was reading and reciting this, singing this with his disciples at the Last Supper, a few days after that triumphal entry, when he was reading and singing this, he knew that this was the day, the day the Lord had made, the day that was prepared all along, that he was going to offer himself on that sacrifice, on that, as that sacrifice, on that altar. And he says, in Psalms, it says, and Jesus would have quoted this, knowing exactly what it meant for him. Bind the sacrifice myself with cords to the horns of the altar. In other words, he's willingly saying, yes, Lord, bind me to the cross with the nails and with the cords. I am willing to pay the ransom for them. I am willing to die on their behalf. I'm willing to be the substitute ram from Genesis 22 so that they can live. The ram died, Isaac lived. Jesus died so that you and I can live. What a beautiful picture of salvation and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is straight from there. Tanakh, as a matter of fact, it's right in the Torah. And they are reading about that again right now in the new season of Torah reading because the day of this taping is shortly after the Feast of Tabernacles has ended and they are beginning over again in the book of Genesis. Jesus' burial was prophesied and typified in the Old Testament through the red heifer sacrifice because the red heifer sacrifice was not just about the blood, but it was also about the ashes the heifer had to die and be burned. And those ashes were then part of the waters of purification mixed with the waters from the pool of Siloam for the service of the people. It was also typified in the unleavened bread because Jesus was that matzah. In Acts chapter 2, verse 24 through 26, Peter is standing up here preaching a very powerful sermon on the day of Pentecost in the upper room in Jerusalem, and he's talking about Jesus. Verse 23 makes that very clear. He says this, beginning of verse 23, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, and he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That was verse 27. Why did Jesus have to be buried and would rise again? 
Oh, beloved friend, it was because of who he was. Just like the matzah represents the unleavened bread, no sin, no leaven in it at all. Jesus was unleavened. He had no sin. He was the Holy One. Therefore, the wages of sin could not hold him. He was not subject to them. Therefore, the grave had no hold on him. He was the Holy One. It was not possible for the grave to hold him because of who he was. And that's a prophetic word from Psalm 16 as well, directly from their scriptures, the Tanakh. Jesus' resurrection was prophesied in the Tanakh as well. I'd like for you to consider this in regard to Jesus' resurrection and him saying that he had to be raised according to the scriptures. One of the ways is because he was raised on the third day. His resurrection was on the same day as the third feast of the Lord, first fruits. His resurrection is represented by the feast of first fruits. And I have a study in, in the archives called the feast of the Lord, discovering Jesus in the feast of the Lord. And so you can look that up and I go into all the feasts and we talk about that in detail. But also in the Tanakh, in Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, it says this, After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. So Jesus' resurrection is prophesied here as another prophetic word found in Hosea chapter 13, verse 14 that also prophesied about Jesus and his resurrection, the grave not being able to hold him because he was the one, the unleavened bread, the sinless sacrifice, the one who would take authority over death, hell, and the grave. In Hosea chapter 13, verse 14, I love the way the New King James translates this verse. And I want to read it from there. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O oh, death, I will be your plagues. O oh, grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. So in this prophetic word, it speaks of the resurrection of the Messiah. It speaks of the fact that the grave could not hold him because he came to pay the ransom and redeem mankind, all people who will believe in him from death. And he himself was the plague and the destruction of death, hell, and the grave. And he says, I'm not going to regret doing it at all. Jesus overcame death, hell, and the grave. Praise be to God. It is also prophesied in Psalms, Chapter 118, verse 17. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. It is also prophesied in Psalm 16, verse 10. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. We just saw that 
back in Acts when Peter is proclaiming that in the sermon. It comes directly from Psalm chapter 16. Jesus' own prophecies when he was alive. He kept prophesying to the disciples, I'm going to die, but I'm going to be raised again on the third day, according to the scriptures. You'll find that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You'll also find it verified in Acts chapter 10, verse 40. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, you actually have the gospel in a nutshell proclaimed and preached by Paul the Apostle. And Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he says this, beginning in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word that I preached to you, that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ, the Messiah, died for our sins according to the scriptures, referring to Psalm chapter 22, Isaiah 53, etc. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Also from Isaiah 53 and Hosea 6. So Jesus' resurrection was prophesied in the Tanakh and fulfilled in the New Testament in Jesus being raised from the dead. Jesus' ascension back to heaven was also prophesied in the Tanakh. Hosea chapter 5 verse 15 says this, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. So Jesus would go back to heaven. This is prophesied right here. Jesus, the son of the living God, God himself come in the flesh, will return again to his place until the Jewish people will acknowledge him. Jesus prophesied about this in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37 through 39. And he told the Jewish people, he says, how, how often I wanted to gather you like a mother hen would do under my wings, but you were not willing. Therefore, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord until they deliver to him the messianic cry. And that is coming. It is coming after and during the time of the tribulation. God is going to deal with his people and they are going to be have their eyes open like Zechariah chapter 12 prophesies about, and they will look on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as for an only son, and they will cry out that cry to him, and he will return when they acknowledge their sin before him, exactly like Hosea chapter 5 prophesied. Jesus' current ministry in heaven now was prophesied in the Old Testament, in the Tanakh. One place that's found is in Psalm chapter 110, verse 4. And it says this, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now I go into this in much more detail in another series. I've done this in several, several different series, but the most recent one, is in the series called Wilderness Man at the Jordan. 
And one of those episodes, I believe it's the episode called Movement, if I'm not mistaken, is where I really go into this and I show when Jesus became the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, when that was transferred to him and when he began to operate in that. And it was during a specific event in the life of Jesus. It was part of what happened at his baptism. And if you want to understand more about that, you can look up that episode. In that episode, I clearly identify how he began to operate in that office of high priest. Jesus is both prophet, priest, and king. He is all three of those. And he's coming as the conquering king. He operated as prophet and as high priest after his baptism in the earthly ministry. And he even operated as king then, but not to the level that he will be in the coming kingdom when he comes and sits and rules in Jerusalem. But according to the author of Hebrews and according to Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, both of those tell us that even right now to this very day, Jesus in heaven is sitting and ever living to intercede for us. We also see in Revelation chapter 1 how Jesus is operating as the head of the church, ministering as high priest among the menorah, among the lampstands in heaven, which represent the church. Jesus coming rule as conquering king is also prophesied in the Tanakh in places such as Psalm chapter 2 and Psalm chapter 45. He is the victor. He is the champion. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah that was prophesied about in Genesis chapter 49 by Jacob to Judah. He is going to be ruling and having his kingdom in Jerusalem in the tabernacle of David inside of his temple, exactly like Zechariah chapter 6 and Isaiah chapter 16 verse 5 tell us. So even his coming rule is prophesied in many places in the Tanakh. And there are many more scriptures, such as Isaiah chapter 26 and other places. The eternal state was also prophesied in the Tanakh, which is the same as Revelation 21 and 22, when God will fulfill the prophetic word given to Isaiah about how he will create the new heaven and the new earth. And we see the result of that in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. So all of these are just some of the ways that everything in the New Testament is a fulfillment of the Tanakh and what was prophesied in the Old Testament. So there is a connection. There is a tie. And so when we can learn how to connect the Old Testament to the New and, and help the Jewish people come to that understanding and that revelation that it's their Messiah, it's the same Messiah. He is the Savior for all the world, Jew and Gentile alike. The gospel, there is only one gospel that is true and everlasting. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, he said, If anyone comes to you with any other gospel, do not receive them. Don't have them over for dinner. Don't let them in your house. Don't have anything to do with them. 
There is one gospel, one good news, and it is the same for all the world, Jew and Gentile alike. Paul even wrote in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel is the power of God to salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. Not to the Jew only, but to the Jew first. There's no such thing as a dual covenant theology. There is one gospel that applies to the entire world, Jew and Gentile alike. And that gospel message before Jesus comes in the second coming to rule and reign in Jerusalem, it will reach the entire world. Our job now is to try to reach as many as we can with the truth of this gospel. And for the Jewish people, part of the way we do that is by connecting the puzzle pieces for them. We show them from the Tanakh, from the Old Testament, how Jesus fulfills it in the new. Jesus did the same thing on two different occasions on the very same day. And I want to close by speaking about this. In Luke chapter 24, I want to first read verse 25 through 27. In Luke 24, Jesus has just risen from the dead. This is resurrection day. He has gone and appeared to God the Father, presenting the Omar offering, which was required on the Feast of first fruits. He told Mary, he said, don't touch me. I've not yet ascended to the Father. He goes to the Father. He sends Mary to tell the disciples he's going to meet them later that same day. He comes and he begins this ministry. He joins it first with two disciples that are leaving the temple in Jerusalem. They're coming from Jerusalem, headed back to Emmaus. They had been to Jerusalem, most likely to offer their Omer offering in the temple, which was required by the Jewish men on the day of first fruits. So they were coming back and they were going home from the temple. He comes up and he begins to sort of pretend that he doesn't know anything about it. Now, he's not doing this for an evil purpose. He's simply wanting to reveal himself to them, but he wants them to tell them, tell him the truth about how they feel and what's been going on. So he kind of plays with them and he says, you know, hey, why are y'all so sad? And so they begin to tell him, well, the Messiah, we thought he was the real Messiah. Now he's dead. He's in a tomb. They sealed his tomb. We can't get to him. We don't know what happened to him. You know, that kind of thing. And so notice this in verse 25. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter his glory and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he did a Bible study with these two men who were going back to Emmaus. And where does he do the Bible study? He takes them from Moses through all the prophets, some of what we just went through in a synopsis form. And he shows how he is in the Old Testament. Then if you go down to verse 44, which happens that very same day, we read this. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. He takes them to the Tanakh, 
The Tanakh is comprised of the, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Exactly what he said here. The law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning him. So he does a Bible study with them, showing them Jesus in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, which were the only scriptures they had at that time. Paul did the same thing in Galatians chapter 3 and in other places. Philip did the same thing in Acts chapter 8. We looked at that in an earlier lesson where we see how Philip comes up on the eunuch that is reading from Isaiah 53. And Philip then takes him and expounds to him, beginning from that scripture through all the prophets, through all the Tanakh, how Jesus fulfills it all. So Jesus is prophesied and typified and pictured for us in the Old Testament. Jesus himself said to the Pharisees, he said, you, you search all these scriptures, meaning the Tanakh, and yet you don't believe what they say because they tell you about me. God wants to go to great lengths to reach everyone, and he will, even through the tribulation period that's coming. He will. He will ensure that no one will ever be able to stand before him and blame him for not warning them, not telling them. But right now, it's the church's job to reach all that we can with the gospel because he desires that we share the gospel, we share the good news, we shine the light of the glorious gospel as Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6 because Jesus himself identified the church as the lampstands in Revelation chapter 1 through 3. And what do we have to share with them? What is the light? It's the gospel, the good news, the good news that yes, every person is a sinner standing before a holy God, guilty as charged, with no hope. But Jesus became our substitute. Jesus was that ram that willingly died in our place. And when we will believe in his atoning work, confess him as Lord and Savior, and receive him and his authority into our lives when we will receive him as our Savior, when the Holy Spirit convicts us, offering us this free gift of salvation, God, the Father, will save us. He will acquit us. He will write our name in the Lamb's book of life and justify us, make us clean from all of our sins and give us a brand new life because the death sentence that was upon us has now been paid by another. It was paid by our substitute. It was paid by that ram caught in the thicket, Jesus himself. The whole of the Old Testament, the whole of the Tanakh talks about that sacrificial system where the innocent dies in behalf and in place of the guilty. Jesus, the innocent, died on your behalf, beloved friend, on my behalf, beloved friend. He's the only one with the eternal holy blood that could offer the perfect, sinless sacrifice. And by doing so, we now have the opportunity to receive the free gift of salvation. His righteousness is imputed to us according to the scriptures. Jesus has done and granted these things to us. Let's get back to the simplicity of the gospel. Let's get back to shining the light of Jesus. And let's do it to both Jew and Gentile alike.
so that we can all celebrate Jesus as one in Messiah. I pray that this has been a blessing to you. And Lord willing, you can join us again for the final episode in this series and any other teachings and series that are brought to you through Covenant Truth Ministries. God bless you today in Jesus' name. Amen.